insecure attachment, the way that it manifests in a relationship is a nervous system asking to be healed in relationship. Mm -hmm. And that is not a bad thing, even if it's very uncomfortable. Yeah. From the Relationship Center, I'm psychotherapist, couples counselor, and dating coach Jessica Engel, and this is I Love You Too, a show about how to create and sustain meaningful relationships. I'm professional certified coach Josh Van Vliet. On today's episode, we're going to be answering some of your questions on the topics around anxious attachment, core wounds in relationships, and fair fighting rules. We're so happy you're here, and please remember that this show is not a substitute for a relationship with a licensed mental health professional. Welcome, y'all. Welcome. Thank you for joining us. We are super excited. We've got some juicy questions sent in by listeners that we're going to be digging into today, uh, all around issues that come up uh, in dating and for couples. And so we're, we're very excited to get into this. And if you'd like us to answer a question from you on a future episode, you can go to relationshipcenter.com slash podcast for instructions about how to send us questions. And we may, uh, we may get to answer it for you. Yes. One announcement before we dive in, you, dear listener, can win a free virtual tea date with me and Josh. That is an hour where you can pick our brains or just hang out and chat. All you need to do is go to Apple Podcasts and write a review, then send a screenshot of your review to podcast at relationshipcenter.com by May 9th, 2023. We will be choosing one winner at random for that virtual tea after May 9th. And thank you in advance. Reviews really help other sweet humans like you find the show. I'm so excited to hear that. That's going to be fun. Me too. All right. Well, let's dive in with our first question, uh, which comes from a listener named Jeremy. And I'm going to go ahead and play his question here. So I'm someone who can definitely tend towards anxious attachment. And a number of the people I've dated uh, have anxious attachment tendencies as well. So I'm curious what advice or wisdom you might share around how to support both myself and uh, someone I'm dating with anxious attachment tendencies. Thanks. Hmm. I love this question. Yeah. Thank you, Jeremy. Do you want to start or do you want, we're going to, we're going to ping pong back and forth (laughs) a little bit here. Yeah. um, Well, and I want to just name, it sounds like there's sort of two pieces to this question taking care of oneself around anxious attachment and then caring for one's partner when they are perhaps in an anxious attachment flare. Mm -hmm. Um, Well, I think I often uh, start. So why don't you start, John? All right. Um, Cool. Well, one of the things I was thinking about as, as I was reflecting on this question is, especially in early dating, I feel like that's the time when it's really important to soothe ourselves on our own because there's not enough relationship present yet. There's not enough trust and safety built up to bring a lot of that anxious attachment or kind of care or request that from our partner, mm-hmm. the person that we're dating. And I was also thinking about how when we're talking about attachment, relationships are so important. And so there's, there are some things we can do to kind of soothe ourselves on our own and those are good. But I also imagine it's really helpful to get some of those relational needs met through other relationships. Right. Yeah, and I'm thinking about the conversation we had with Laya in our online dating burnout yeah. episodes where she was really emphasizing don't try to get all of your relational needs met through dating because um, it can put undue pressure on the people that you're dating. So yeah, I agree. I think you're thinking of a couple of things I was going to say. One, there are going to be points in the 
dating process or, or relationship process where we're going to need to practice self-soothing. Mm-hmm. And the thing about both anxious and avoidant attachment is there's a difficulty with just that, with self-soothing. We, we need other either things or people to help us manage our emotions more so than maybe is helpful or at times like functional for us. Mm-hmm. So it's a great moment to take the opportunity to use, I think, things like um, meditation or deep breathing or qigong or journaling or reading, sometimes taking in just other information that's not related to the relationship can be really, really helpful. And yeah, I, I think that's right on. Anxious attachment is a hyper arousal of the attachment system. It, it's like... I mean, on a nervous system level, it's kind of like, it's kind of like a tiger is chasing you, <laughs> which is kind of true. Like on, on a nervous system level, yeah. when our attachment system gets hyperactivated, it's because we feel a threat and specifically the threat of the loss of an attachment figure, um, which on a, a sort of primal level can feel like uh, the threat of death. Mm-hmm. And so you, your body's like filling you up with all this energy so you can run away or run towards your attachment figure, you have to do something with that energy, right? right? right. And sometimes that is part of the self-soothing, like maybe exercise is part of your self-soothing, but also reaching out to other attachment figures, right? Like friends or family or a therapist. And one one of the tips that I really liked from the book Attached is when you are more anxiously attached, make sure that you date multiple people, you're still in the dating game until you're very clear that you are um, attaching to one particular person and they're really able to meet your needs. That way you're kind of, I don't want to say tricking your attachment system, but there's a, uh, you're feeding it, right? So if uh, the person you went on a date with on Sunday, it's Tuesday, they haven't responded yet, you can go swipe a bit, maybe message some other matches and your attachment system is going to feel like it's putting its energy somewhere. Mm -hmm. It's so funny. I think that's uh, so smart and it's advice that I so hate. (laughs) Mm -hmm. You know, I think it just kind of goes against uh, my, my urges or my, my instincts to like attach immediately. Right. Yeah. Um, Which I think is why it's so valuable, right? It's, uh, it's just, it can be very uncomfortable for those of us who are anxiously attached that we, we want to be kind of all in or we want to like, like, no, this is our person. And what you're saying is to have more, we're almost like telling our nervous system, we've got options here. Yes. We've got other people. This is not like if this person leaves or isn't available or doesn't work out for some reason, then it's all over, right. you know, end of the world. It's like we're kind of giving signals for other, other kinds of safety or, or, or options to get our needs met. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, and um, I, I hear you and I want to be very clear, dating multiple people isn't necessarily going to be comfortable. Right, <laughs> really. For some of us, it's very uncomfortable. Some people it's fine, but... Yeah, and so I think it's good to hold it as a short-term strategy for right. doing that pacing and assessing prior right. to uh, hyper-attaching. Totally. Shall we talk about some other ways to work with anxious attachment within oneself? You know, you mentioned in some instances, uh, maybe 
particularly later on in a relationship, it's appropriate to go to your partner with some anxious right. attachment. Yeah. And I'm, I'm thinking, let's talk a little bit more about if that it's not really time for that or if your partner is unavailable, which Perfect. is going to happen in any relationship at any stage. There's yeah. going to be some unavailability, right? That's a great point. I just want to, I'm just letting that sink in for myself right now. What you're saying is it's normal at all times in a relationship, no matter how long you've been together, of course, your partner is not going to be available at all times to meet all of your attachment needs. Right. And that's really helpful to remember. I think sometimes I get in my head like, oh, you know, we should be there for our partner at all times. Our partner should be there mm-hmm. for us at all times. And it's just like, no, we're all human. It's, it's good and normal to have moments when your partner isn't available and you rely on other resources. Yeah. And that kind of allows you to feed more energy back into the relationship. Mm-hmm. Whereas if you're just relying on each other for that kind of support, then it's, it, it's a little bit more fragile, a little bit less resilient. Absolutely. Resistant. Right. Yeah. It's a village to have a relationship. Yeah. Right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, maybe somewhat related to that, I think just one piece I really want to recommend around managing one's own anxious attachment is to radically accept that attachment style. Mm. It can be very hard because it can be a very painful style. Mm-hmm. There can be kind of a sense of like, I never get my needs fully met and also a sense of inferiority in terms of I'm too needy. Mm-hmm. And that's so painful. And, you know, anxious attachment is a normal response to inconsistent care, right? That's that's what anxious attachment is a reflection of. We've had a, a caregiver or an attachment figure who was there in some moments emotionally and not in others. Mm-hmm. And so this is just kind of a natural outgrowth of that. And so I think really trying to practice self-compassion as much as possible and seeing this not as a flaw or a moral failing, but as just a part of, of this sweet animal body, in the words of Mary Oliver, that you need to take care of. What else do you have, Josh? Everything else on my list is about what to do with your partner. So Ah. anything else that you want to add about how to support yourself uh, with anxious attachment? Yes. Uh, Two more. One, when you're feeling anxious, try to take a moment to, to tune into what might be getting activated from your past attachment relationships. Mm -hmm. So, you know, oftentimes our attachment styles are a result of our, lived relationship experience. And so when we're anxious, say in dating or in a relationship, it may be about that current experience. And it may also be that a childhood experience of uh, inconsistent care is being activated. The reason it's important to connect the dots is that that early experience of not having consistent care that typically underlies anxious attachment, it's what's called implicit memory. And so it's kind of wired into our brains and bodies in a way that isn't always conscious. It's not like we remember, oh, my mom didn't come into my room when I called for her when I was four. We, we may, but typically it, it's more of a, an embodied sense of fear of being left. It's just, I'm anxious right now. My partner isn't returning my phone calls. Right. WTF. WTF. Yeah. And so with implicit memory, when we can make it explicit or conscious, it has less control over us. Mm -hmm. 
So we move it from the part of our brain that it stores implicit memory and that we in many ways react to or get flooded by. We move all of that information into our prefrontal cortex, which is the part of our brain that makes us these higher thinking beings, allows us to be human and not just animal. Mm-hmm. And so the more we can say, okay, I'm, I'm noticing I'm feeling really anxious because my partner seems really preoccupied. What does this relate back to? And I think about the pieces of my story it might relate back to. I tune into my body. I see if there are memories that come up or just an instinct about what is getting triggered. All of that is going to allow us to actually develop more secure attachment because we have a more coherent sense of self. It also strikes me what you're, what you're pointing out here helps us to draw a distinction between the anxiety that's coming up and what's happening in the present moment and is some of it may not be about this. Right. And if we can recognize, and I want to say this very, in a very particular way, the anxiety is valid. It's there for a reason, right? Yes. It, it's, it's, I, I in no way mean to imply that you shouldn't be anxious because you have, you know, just like you were talking about, there are experiences you had in your life that your, your nervous system has developed this particular response that is very, has been very adaptive for you. Up Absolutely. And when we can get a little bit of that kind of tying these pieces together, like you're talking about, it gives us a different window onto what's happening. At, and it's like, oh, my partner's preoccupied right now. That may not be a sign that they're about to leave, right? right. It's maybe they just had a hard day at work. And when I can see, okay, this anxiety isn't really about this, isn't necessarily a signal of immediate danger that allows us to interact differently, respond differently to our partner, to ourselves in that moment with a little bit more compassion for what's happening. Yes, beautifully put. So we're developing our observing ego, we're using mindfulness, and that allows us to respond rather than react. I think everyone probably has been in a relationship with somebody who's been more reactive than responsive. <laughs> it's not fun. Not fun. Uh, and so this uh, sort of breath between anxious attachment experience and action will give you a better chance of building close relationships. Mm-hmm. It really gives you, I think, uh, to what you're saying before about self-compassion, helps you develop that self-compassion like, oh, this makes sense. Yes. What I'm experiencing makes sense because of what I've been through. Yeah. And I don't have to judge myself so harshly for why am I being like this? I shouldn't be this anxious right now. I shouldn't, you know, have this experience. It's like, oh no, this all adds up. Absolutely. The the kind of emotional math, I, I think about it sometimes, it all adds up. It all adds up. Yeah. Yeah, I love that you're pointing that out. And I think that's a big piece of healing anxious attachment is really rooting in this is completely understandable, mm-hmm. as you were saying. Yeah. Beautiful. One last one before we move on. So I want to just touch on secure attachment priming. Oh, I love this. Yeah, yes. Go ahead. So we have some really uh, yummy research that says that we can actually develop more secure attachment by consuming images, movies, music, or spending time with people who are secure functioning couples. Okay. Let me back up. So that was that was consuming media of secure functioning couples or of parent-child dyads where you're seeing sort of symbols, signifiers of secure attachment. So 
they're gazing at each other in the eyes. Maybe they're smiling. If it's a TV or a, a TV show or a movie, perhaps you're seeing them respond to one another's emotional bids for connection really effectively, making amends when they make mistakes, these sorts of things. So all of that, or spending time with people who are secure functioning couples or securely attached people, your nervous system will actually learn the embodied experience of secure attachment more so that you're able to activate those circuits in your relationships or if you're dating to recognize when somebody activates them in you. Mm. Uh, so I love, love, love secure attachment priming. A few concrete ways to use this. Uh, like I mentioned, movies, TV shows, music that features those kinds of people spend time with uh, those you see as secure functioning or securely attached. You also could uh, experiment with some self-parenting. This is where we go inward and we try to soothe the scared child in us, probably that child that had that inconsistent care. And there's a lot of different ways you can do that. Some practices include mindful self-compassion. There's also a practice called inner bonding. We can link to those in case that's helpful. One last practice of secure attachment priming is to have a conversation with your future partner. You can do this in writing. You can do this internally as a visualization, or you can do it out loud. Uh, and what you're going to want to do there is play both sides. Play yourself, play your partner. And when your partner speaks to you, have them speak to you with the tone of somebody who is there for you emotionally, loves you, and is really able to soothe you in the way that works for you. You may not necessarily know what that sounds like right away. Um, I know for a lot of people, they kind of have to learn what that mm -hmm. sounds like. So, you know, go back to finding that media uh, or people who are securely attached, maybe a therapist, and start to really pay attention to how do these people actually speak to one another, both in words, but also in tone. Mm -hmm. That's so great. Because in doing that, you're getting to practice the skills that you will need to be in a secure functioning relationship as well. Yes. Uh, I love that. Okay. Well, why don't we dig into uh, the second part of this question uh, around what are some of the things that you can do to help soothe your partner? Mm -hmm. One of the very basic things that, that I was thinking about is just expressing your care, expressing your affection, appreciation at whatever level is authentic to the relationship. Yes. So even if it's early on in dating, you might, for example, after a first date, I'm just text them and say, hey, I really enjoyed spending time with you. Maybe share something you appreciated about them. Mm -hmm. If it's uh, later on in dating, it might look like uh, you're saying I love you or whatever it might be. But some of these things that can help almost like preemptively help soothe anxious attachment when, because for those of us who, who have anxious attachment tendencies, part of it is not knowing if our partner cares, is available, is interested in us. And that's kind of some, one of the things that can rev it up like, aha, I don't know. Uh, and so if we're consistently expressing care and affection, that can help uh, head that off. Yes, Absolutely. Yeah, um, a couple therapist years ago said to me, you really want to catch the train before it leaves the station. Mm -hmm. 
uh, when it comes to two nervous systems, if you get past a certain point of dysregulation, it's not good. Hard. Uh, hard, to, hard to rein it back in. Right. Yeah. yeah. So I think those indicators of we're, we're connected, I love you, I'm still here in all those small ways really help with that. Mm-hmm. I think related to that, really using specifically loving touch, soft gazes, and you already named it. I, I have attachment-oriented statements, things mm. like, I love you, I'm here, mm. I'm so happy to be close to you, I'm not going anywhere. Words are really helpful for reestablishing attachment and more, even more so than words, our tone of voice, our micro-expressions and our eye contact, also proximity and touch, have a really powerful regulating impact on the nervous system. Mm -hmm. So you just want to make sure that you are really just coming in with as much softness as possible. Yeah, it's almost like you can't help them regulate if you are not regulated yourself. It's it's much harder, I mean, I'll say. And so to the extent that you can be that in the way that you're talking, you can be uh, present, be caring, you know, let them know how you're doing, what you feel about them. Because obviously if, you, if you're saying, I love you, but you're really feeling anxious and annoyed, you're probably going to tell. There, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> it's it's got to match what you're, you know, it can't just be like words. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. And I think that it's good to keep in mind, like we were saying earlier, if, if you have some anxious attachment, there's probably an experience in your childhood where you didn't get the care that you needed. And so remembering that when your partner's in that anxious state, that scared inner child is probably activated. Mm-hmm. And speaking to that person, not in a patronizing way, but just keeping in mind right now on a psychological level, they may be kind of at a like a six-year-old's level. So I think treating your partner with the same kind of tenderness you would treat, say, a four-year-old, or a six-year-old who is really scared, that it can often be much more effective than maybe sort of intellectualizing and trying to talk about it from this kind of adult place. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. One of the traps we can so easily fall into is thinking about it, quote unquote, rationally. Mm-hmm. Right? It's like sometimes it's like, well, rationally, you shouldn't be up this, this upset about this thing, right? right? Yes. It shouldn't, you should, this doesn't make sense. This is a little thing. And now you're super anxious and upset and mad at me. Like, let's just look at it rationally. And it's like in that moment, no, they, right. they're not in a place to be able to look at it rationally. And that's not what they're needing in that moment. You know, they need that as you're, as you're pointing to that, that care, that tenderness, that like compassion for they're really suffering in that moment. Yes. And not so much because of that, maybe that little thing that happened, but because of all the things that have happened that led up to that moment that are real, that are important, that are valid. And along those lines, one of the things that I, I, I find so helpful for me to hold on to is not just that this is, this is valid, but this is important. Mm-hmm. When we're thinking about developing secure attachment, uh, being in a secure functioning relationship, it's uncomfortable when our anxious attachment comes up, but it's important. Yes. These are the opportunities for rewiring, for healing, for finding other ways to move through these moments. And so not as it only just like 
you know, okay that it's coming up. It's like, oh, this is, this is good. Yes. It's uncomfortable. <laughs> Maybe it wasn't what I thought we were going to be doing tonight, but this is actually really important. Yeah. So coming back to that radical acceptance piece, yeah. Yeah. insecure attachment, the way that it manifests in a relationship is a nervous system asking to be healed in relationship. Mm -hmm. And that is not a bad thing, even if it's very uncomfortable. Yeah. Shall we talk two other short tips and then move on to the next question? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I've got one or two as well. So do you want to? Very good. You go and then I'll go and then you go. All right. One other tip for helping support your partner if they're in an anxious attachment flare is to make sure that you have rituals for reunions and departures. Mm -hmm. So uh, coming apart and back together again is difficult for those who are anxiously attached because they have to really confront their fears about being left on often a very small level, but nonetheless dysregulating level. Mm -hmm. And so if you have uh, structured practices for those re reunions and departures, that can be very, very soothing. And that can be something as simple as anytime my partner comes home, I make sure to greet them at the door and hug them and welcome them warmly. And anytime they leave, I kiss them and say goodbye. Mm -hmm. Super simple, but really helps us stay connected and know, kind of be present with each other, know that we're okay and everything is fine and we can kind of go and separate and then come back. And yes. Love that. The other thing I was thinking about is if there's something that's coming up that you've done on your side of the street, mm. that can be really helpful. Uh, you know, if you've done something that caused some suffering, even if you didn't mean to do it, just acknowledge it and apologize and acknowledge the impact that it had, right? It's so important to say, hey, sweetie, I'm so sorry. I, I really hear that when I spoke in that harsh tone to you, it really hurt. I didn't mean that, and I, I, but I really hear that it was very painful and you know, you kind of felt shut down in that moment. I'm so sorry. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so just kind of not letting your defensiveness come up or like it shouldn't be this way, but just like, oh, this is, this is what happened. Let me, yes. Let me acknowledge that, show that I'm really hearing the pain that they're in so that they can really start to feel close again. Like, oh, okay, this person's got me. Yes. Yeah, and you're talking to the importance of, of knowing how to repair ruptures. Ruptures happen in relationships all the time, even if you're in a secure functioning relationship. And so secure functioning couples know how to make amends. Mm -hmm. They know how to fix that tear. Oh, one more. This one's important. Mm -hmm. Okay. When an anxiously attached person is in their anxiety they are often filled with a sense of hopelessness about their needs getting met in relationship. Mm -hmm. As a result, oftentimes they will come across as angry and resistant mm -hmm. and critical, mm -hmm. even though that's not what they're intending at all. Mm -hmm. And that can look like sending out uh, explicit and implicit messages to go away. Mm -hmm. So for example, you mess up, you, you know, do something that triggers them a little bit, and they say, fine, I don't care. You can go spend time in the other room. I'm going to be over here doing my thing. Um, so on the surface, that seems like a very clear message to go away. But if they are truly anxiously attached, they're actually wanting you to come closer. So that's actually a moment to come close and say, hey, I really, 
I have the sense that things aren't okay. And I want you to know I'm here and I love you and I really want to know what's happening. And that's actually going to soothe their system much, much more. And that takes some practice. Mm -hmm. That is not uh, not necessarily <laughs> intuitive for us. Yeah. Because uh, our own stuff can get kicked up. It's like, well, okay, I'm going to go away. Fine. Right. You don't want to be near me. All right. Whatever. And, uh, but to really pause and say, okay, I see while this is uncomfortable, this is a signal that they, they, they want and need closeness right now. Yes. So I'm going to go towards them. That's great. Yay. Yay. Thank you again, Jeremy. That was a wonderful question. Yeah, I feel like we could do a whole episode on that. Mm -hmm. Speaking of which, I, I, uh, I'm excited. I think at some point we're going to do a whole episode on secure attachment priming. Yes. I'm excited to really get to dig into that more. Mm -hmm. It's so juicy. All right. Uh, question number two. You ready? Ready. Okay. So this question comes from Lisa and she asks, what advice can you share if you have a relationship where one of the partner's core wounds begins to overly become the filter through which they see their partner's actions, even if that isn't the intention of the other partner. And the example she gives is one partner never felt they could speak up to their parents or peers, but now they think they see that pattern occurring all the time with their significant other, uh, even if that may not be the case. Yes. I love this question. And when I read it, I was like, oh, you mean every relationship? That's the same thought I had. It's like, oh yeah, this is what happens for everybody. <laughs> this is so normal. So normal. Yeah. And, and I feel like knowing, kind of recognizing that it's normal can help just lessen the, the angst about it. Yes. Uh, it's like, oh no, this is, this is a good sign. This is part of what, what uh, comes with the territory of having a partner. <laughs> yes. Yeah, yeah. In some ways it can be very, I think, kind of counterintuitive or confusing because as we get closer to our partner, as we become more like family, say we commit on a certain level, maybe we move in, maybe we get engaged, whatever it is, all of those implicit memory circuits that I mentioned earlier are going to get more activated. Mm -hmm. We're going to have more of that family stuff come up. Yeah. So I think this comes back to the radical acceptance. Yeah, yeah. I wrote down, this is coming up for a reason and it's good. Yeah. <laughs> it's good that it's coming up. It's important. Uh, yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, I, I made me think about Imago theory, which basically says that we look for partners who match the sort of internal amalgamation of our, all of our early caregivers, all the good and all the bad, mm. because we really want to have the good, but also fix what didn't work mm -hmm. on some unconscious level. Right. And that the, the point isn't to find somebody who doesn't bring up your stuff. The point is to find someone who can help you heal. Mm. who can respond to you in a way that maybe your caregivers couldn't. Yeah, that's so beautiful. A sweet and, and realistic, I think, view yes. on what partnership is all about. So what do you think, Josh? What's one approach to working with poor wounds getting activated in a partnership? Yeah, well, I think part of it, one of the things that can, can be helpful is to just notice, like, what bothers me about this? Mm -hmm. Because... It's, it's, it's framed as this is coming up from my partner. I'm imagining that the question is being asked because there's something that's, that's frustrating about that, mm -hmm. right? Uh, it's like, well, this isn't, this isn't rational. This isn't fair. This isn't what I'm trying to do, which is true, right? We're not trying to go around bringing stuff up for our partner. Uh, but I think that place where we can get hooked sometimes is of, well, it's not supposed to be like this or, or it's not fair that they're 
putting this their stuff on me and that's not about me. That's about them. Come on. Yes. Yeah. And so just kind of noticing like, well, what is it that comes up for me? Where, where are the places that I get annoyed or irritated or frustrated? Not to make that wrong, but just to kind of take care of that and, and be gentle with that because that's important too. And if you're not present with that, you can't be present with your partner in a way that is healing and loving. Absolutely. Helping them. So that, that felt like the first place because it's so, it's so easy to get sucked into this trap of trying to figure out who is in the right, so mm-hmm. to speak, um, or like who has the blame or the responsibility. It's like this is so common in partnerships. It's like, well, I want to know this one's about you. That, that, other one, that, that other one is about me. I'll take that one. But this one, this one's all on you. Right. And it's like, you know, I'm justified for feeling this way. Mm-hmm. Or, you know, if, if they would only heal their trauma, this wouldn't be coming up. Right. Or if, or sometimes the opposite, right. If, if in the kind of blame or internal blame or shame, like if I didn't say these things like that, they wouldn't get triggered and I'm terrible. Yes. Where it's really, is, it's more like both of what you're feeling is valid even if it feels contradictory, mm-hmm. right? There's not a like one right answer here that if we kind of loosen our grip on trying to figure out what the truth is, kind of I'm using air quotes here, the truth, because what is truth? That when we can loosen our grip on that, we can, we can really see, oh no, a relationship is between two people is complex. It's, it's a, a two person psychological system to borrow, I think Stan, Stan Tacken's phrase mm-hmm. and that we all bring stuff to that. Yes. Whether it's kind of quote unquote big T trauma, little T trauma, life experiences, painful breakups, relationships, experiences from childhood. And that's going to get kicked up for both of us. And if we shift from who's right or who's responsible and instead look at, oh, how can we use this to heal together? I feel like that's a really powerful frame or like vantage point to, to get at this. Absolutely. Yeah, I think that's so beautiful. So this process of turning towards ourselves in those moments where we feel like it's unfair is so important uh, for shifting out of that find the bad guy state. Sue Johnson, who wrote Hold Me Tight, talks a lot about all of the find the bad guy dances that couples do. Highly recommend that book. And that self-compassion is the way to get our selves back to a place where we can be that soothing force for our partner, which is going to stop the train from leaving the station. Mm-hmm. I think the other piece I really love about what you're saying is the way that, that I put words to it is which of your core wounds get activated mm-hmm. when your partner's core wounds get activated. Because the, the, from what I've seen working with couples is the places where they struggle the most are where they have these interlocking traumas or these vulnerability cycles where your trauma gets activated and makes you act a certain way, which activates my trauma, Mm -hmm. and neither of us is in our regulated adult self, Mm -hmm. and the train leaves the station. (laughs) (laughs) Choo-choo. So, yeah, that's what I would come back to is, what is it about my partner seeing me as attacking or criticizing potentially, does that activate something from my own experience? Mm. Was I scapegoated? Mm. Was I blamed? Yeah. Was I told I shouldn't express myself in the way that I naturally express myself? Mm. 
because I think that information is going to allow you to to negotiate how to be in those moments, considering both of your sort of wounded younger selves are activated. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I love I love what you're saying about that and the the way of really identifying very specifically what it might be linked to, mm-hmm. so that you can have compassion for yourself and your own experience. The other piece I'm hearing in that is acknowledging, oh, we both have stuff coming up here. That it's about, there's a piece of this for both of us. That's not just one part. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. The other thought I was having around this is, is there something I'm doing that is, uh, that is bringing up this experience for the other person, even unintentionally, right? Where I might be able to acknowledge and validate their experience. And, and, and as I was saying in the previous question, apologize for any harm that I've, I've caused even unintentionally, right? And, you know, I, I, I think sometimes of the metaphor of, of a wound. If our partner had like a cut on their arm, uh, you know, we wouldn't go around poking the cut, right? Mm-hmm. Like normally if they, they didn't have a wound in their arm, I could poke their arm. It wouldn't be a big deal. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it would be fine. But, you know, in a similar way with, with emotional wounds, wounds from our past or our childhood, things that we kind of think rationally, like this shouldn't be a big deal when we do them may still be kind of like poking the wound. Yes. And so it's not about, oh, I should never do these things, you know, but let me look and see, okay, if I know that this particular thing is, is really hard for my partner right now, are there ways that we can work with that? Are there ways that I can maybe be a little bit more gentle around that area while we're healing this? Not like this is how it's going to be forever in our relationship and I just have to never you know, do this thing, right? Right. Because I don't think that's very functional. Mm-mm. But as we're healing, as we're creating space for some new experiences, uh, some new neural pathways around this stuff, uh, where could I maybe be a little bit gentle, more gentle with my partner here? Yes, I love that. And I think that it's also helpful to remember that we are wired to look for threats in the environment. Mm-hmm. We are like constantly scanning Mm -hmm. on an unconscious level for threats, including on our partner's face, in their tone of voice. And so because we're we're the descendants of the most anxious uh, creatures in millennia past, right? The ones who were most scanning the most for threat were the ones who survived. Mm -hmm. Um, We tend to uh, interpret threat where it doesn't exist. Right. Right. It's it's a better evolutionarily. It's a better mistake to see threat where there isn't one. Right. Uh, Ninety nine times than to uh, miss a threat when there is one once. Yes. Then you're dead. Yes. And so, as you're saying, it's like so normal for us to see threats all over the place that aren't real or aren't right. at the level that we think they are. Right. And there's some very small, subtle things that we can do with our face, with our tone of voice that is going to send the threat response off in most people. Mm -hmm. So for example, if you're sitting side by side, not looking into one another's eyes, looking out of your peripheral vision, you're more likely to get uh, triggered into a threat response. Mm -hmm. Because, uh, you know, as creatures, something that's in our peripheral vision uh, could be attacking us. Mm -hmm. So things like that, you may completely unintentionally have a particular facial expression or tone of voice that gets your partner's threat system going. And so it's really helpful, I think, to talk very specifically about 
well, what is it in that moment when you feel like I'm attacking you that you're seeing on my face or hearing in my voice? Is there a harshness? Is there something that uh, feels threatening? Mm. Yeah. Yeah, that's great. That's, that's, I love, uh, I love it. I just love it. (laughs) (laughs) Anything else to say about it? (laughs) The other thought I had on this is, you know, we're talking about the, seeing the opportunities for, for mutual healing, for seeing where our stuff comes up, for acknowledging where we may have done harm, even unintentionally and, and apologizing, understanding what I might be doing that might be sending signals of threat. And I, I want to just name it. If you, there are, there may be moments in your relationship where you truly aren't available to do a particular piece of healing with your partner. And if that's the case, it's really important to name that too. Not, not because that's, and I want to say this because it's, it's important to see this isn't bad. This isn't wrong. It's not a failure on your part or their part, but it's, it is really important to acknowledge like, oh, I need to, I need to heal this piece separately because um, for whatever reason, or I, or I need my partner to heal this piece separately because it's, it's maybe too triggering for me right now to work with them around this. And that doesn't mean you need to break up. doesn't mean you need to like, you know, it's just might be, okay, I'm going to go work with my therapist on this piece and then bring this back into the relationship when I'm, when we're ready. Yes. And that's just important to acknowledge. So it doesn't, we, we don't keep getting in these cycles over and over again and feeling frustrated and feeling hurt um, and kind of reinforcing inadvertently some of the painful patterns. Yes. I love how you're framing it in terms of you're not coming in saying, hey, your trauma stuff is getting in the way of our relationship. You need to go deal with it. Mm-hmm. It's you're coming in and saying, I'm noticing my stuff's getting activated or my capacity is limited around whatever it is that's wanting to be healed in our relationship right now. And we need more support. Yeah. That's just such a different tone. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I love the, what you just said about we need more support because it could also be that it's just you need some couples therapy. Right. Where just having someone who can support the two of you together to navigate those those tender moments, that could also be, just be what you need. It may not be that you have to go completely outside of each other to get that support. It may just be that a skillful couples therapist can really help make the difference there. Yes, absolutely. Okay, cool. I hope that's helpful, Lisa. Yes. Thank you, Lisa. It's, again. Just a great question. All right. So let's go on to our third and final question for today's show. And this comes from Danny. What are your top three fair fighting tools for fostering a harmonious, mutually supportive relationship? Great question, Danny. I love it so much. I'd love you to start this one. I want to hear what you got. Great. Okay. So first I want to start start by talking about fair fighting rules, which is a little different from fair fighting tools. Mm. Is that your first tool? (laughs) Differentiate the two. (laughs) Here's set some fair fighting rules for fair fighting. Right. Yeah. So we could consider that the the first rule, in which case I will have four, not three. So fair fighting rules, some couples are really eager for these because they're wanting to kind of know what's normal and acceptable in conflict Mm. and have some baseline behaviors that they can agree to. I'm going to link to a list of potential rules and I'll give you an example of a few. 
So for example, for some couples decide in our fights, we're not going to do name calling. We're not going to curse at each other. We're not going to threaten the relationship and we're not going to ice each other out. We're not going to do that stonewalling thing. Mm-hmm. Okay. That's great. The thing I want to say about this is that not all fair fighting rules fit all couples. So one in particular to think about is raising one's voice. For some people, they grew up in perhaps a conflict avoidant household and raising voices does not work for their nervous system. Mm -hmm. For others, perhaps they grew up in a very emotionally expressive household and raising voices really does work. Mm -hmm. So I think that related to the fair fighting rules, talk with your partner and really come to an agreement together about what those rules are. Mm -hmm. Ideally when you're not in the middle of a fight. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, good point. (laughs) Yeah. How about you, Josh? Yeah, I I think along a similar line, having some uh, shared agreements. And one of the things that comes up for me is having like a shared context or purpose for your relationship. In particular, you know, it might look like we have a shared context for healing and growth. That's part of what we agree we're about together is helping each other heal, helping each other grow. And I'm, I'm realizing as I'm saying this, the possible danger of this is thinking like, oh, I'm going to use this fight to help my partner grow. Ha ha ha. <laughs> they mm. have to grow here, mm. which is not what this is about at all. But rather we're sharing this context of we're interested in growing together. We're interested in healing things from the past. And part of that viewpoint is that things will come up like we've been talking about in the previous two questions, anxious attachment, wounds from childhood, past trauma, whatever it might be. And that we see that even in our fights, these are opportunities for um, providing each other a different experience than what we had in the past. And so uh, that might look like, well, a lot of things we've been talking about in this episode, really being loving around something that was painful, cleaning it up when we mess up, you know, making an apology when that's warranted, whatever it might be that's like different than the experiences we've had in the past in relationships. That makes sense. My things clearly. It makes perfect sense to me. I mean, what I'm hearing is that having a frame for conflict and what it's for, and having that frame be about we're in this together. This conflict is for healing. Mm-hmm. It's a very different context from what I imagine is a lot of people's frame for conflict, which is this means something's wrong. And or I need to make sure that I get my point across mm-hmm. or I, I protect myself. Right. And so that first frame puts you and your partner on the same team. Yeah, exactly. So it's going to turn on more of that pro-social, we're going to take care of each other part of your brain and not the find the bad guy, protect yourself. Mm-hmm. Okay, let's talk about another communication tool that supports fair fighting. Okay. I statements. Yep. We have a wonderful article about this that we'll link you to. Use I statements that help you communicate your feelings and your needs rather than you statements tend to communicate judgments, blame, Mm -hmm. which doesn't tend to end well. (laughs) If you want to see people get defensive really quickly, (laughs) tell them why they're wrong and 
uh, how uh, it's all their fault. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And so just for a brief example, an I statement versus a you statement, I'm feeling really scared and anxious right now versus you really messed up. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Versus uh, a, a sneaky you statement. I feel like you really messed up. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I feel like you're a jerk. Right. No, no, no. no. <laughs> Not actually a feeling. <laughs> yeah. So there's some really important nuance in how we use these, which we'll link to that article because it's it's great. This is maybe one of those skills that you want to practice outside of yes. fighting, right? That because it is a skill set, because it takes some time to get used to it and get used to some of the nuance so that we can do it well in those moments when it really counts, uh, like you're saying, and we don't default to some of the the less skillful ways of communicating. Yes. I love that you're emphasizing practice outside of these conflictual moments. It's just like with safer sex, you want to talk about the, I feel like this is going to go downhill real No, fast. it's good. I love it. <laughs> go, go there. Go there. You want to talk about protection prior to being in the middle of getting down. Yeah. Right? Yeah. It's hard to have these conversations clearly or develop these skills well when our brains are in an altered state, whether that's from lust or from anger or anything else. Yes. Thank you for going on that journey with me. Absolutely. <laughs> Always. <laughs> the, the next one on my list, which I think pairs really nicely with I statements, is reflective listening. Yes. And by this, I mean, let me make sure I really understand what you're saying, what you're feeling, what you're experiencing, what you're thinking before I tell you what I think. And so this, what this could look like, even if you just said, say your I statement again. I'm feeling very sad and anxious. Love, I, I really hear that you're, you're feeling very sad and anxious right now. Will you tell me what's going on? Yes. And so I'm, I'm adding here, obviously, to continue to, to understand. Mm-hmm. I'm asking kind of exploratory questions to really know why are you feeling sad and anxious? What, what's going on such that's happening right now? And then I would reflect, you know, maybe you say something else. I don't know when I'm going to be able to finish this sentence. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I really hear that uh, you, f- you feel really sad and anxious when you don't know when you're going to be able to finish this sentence. Is that right? Hard. Oh, sweetie. Oh, yeah, it's just, I can see how that would be hard. Yeah. I like making sense. Yeah, but that's natural. We all like making sense. Yeah, <laughs> it's hard when we think we're not making sense. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so just like even in that we're kind of, we're, we're being playful here, but you get the sense, I'm really interested in how is she feeling? What's going on? Rather than, well, it's not my fault. <laughs> mm-hmm. I mean, you leading with an I statement makes it much easier to respond that way. I will say it's like if someone, if you were to say to me, I, I'm, you know, yeah, you, wanna, you really messed up. Yeah. In that moment, I'm, I, it, my instinct is like, what, what, what the hell? Like, what? Uh, no, I didn't. Mm-hmm. Uh, and even in that moment, it's a skillful moment to kind of deescalate in that moment to say, oh, I really'd love to know what's going on. I'm hearing you, you're pretty upset and you feel like I messed up in some way. What happened? What did I do? So that we're starting to unpack what's going on. Yes. I'm aiming towards, let me make sure I really get it before I even try to share my side of the story. Yes. So important. And 
I have the couple's dialogue, which is from Imago Therapy. It is a structured version of reflective listening where both people get to take turns being the listener as well as the talker. That's beautiful. So we'll link to that and it includes places where you validate one another's emotions, you empathize with their experience. uh, And it's one of my very favorite tools to use when helping couples kind of get back on the same page again. Does it include in there uh, checking to see if you're you're reflecting correctly? Yes. Yeah. I I was just thinking about that. That's such an important moment to be like, did I get it? Did I get it? Yeah. And it also often includes the question, is there more? Love that. That's perfect. I mean, I think a lot of couples have probably had the experience of, okay, I'm talking to my partner, but wasn't able to get it all out, mm-hmm. right? And there's something so uh, regulating about being able to name all of the things that are happening. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. And knowing that your partner isn't just waiting for their turn to share, mm-hmm. right? Right. <laughs> well, talk about a great way to trigger some anxious attachment. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> the other person's like, are you, are you there? Yep. Great. So reflective listening and you can use the couple's dialogue specifically for that. The other tool that I have is the four horsemen of the apocalypse antidotes. Mm -hmm. So we've talked on the show before about Gottman's finding that there are four things that couples who don't tend to last do in their communication with one another, criticism, defensiveness, stonewalling, and contempt. So there are antidotes to all of those. I'll read them briefly and then we'll link them in the show notes. One, a gentle startup, including using I statements, Mm -hmm. expressing a positive need, building a culture of appreciation. This goes back to what we were saying earlier of can you give those words of affirmation, create a sense of gratitude, taking responsibility, accepting your partner's perspective and offering an apology for any wrongdoing. And then physiological self-soothing, this one is, I think, really helpful and important to name. Take a break and spend time doing something soothing and distracting if you've gotten to the place where neither of you can really be grounded enough to have a productive conversation. Our research shows that 20 to 30 minutes of doing something away from your partner, not focusing on the conflict, is the time that's typically needed to bring one's nervous system back to more regulated state. The key with this, especially if you have an anxiously attached partner, is that you have an agreement about when you're going to come back together. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's so important. And I want to reassure all of, especially I think this probably comes up more for our, our anxiously attached folks, it's okay to take a break. And I say that from my own experience, knowing it can be very uncomfortable it can feel like, no, we have to get this resolved now. We're not going to leave this until we're reconnected, until everything is okay. And it can feel very uncomfortable, very scary or threatening to take a break. Um, and it's so useful yes. sometimes. It's just like so what you need to let your brain cool down a little bit so that other parts of your brain can come online, your prefrontal cortex you can think a little bit more clearly. You can reason with your adult brain a little bit more effectively and see, see solutions, see pathways, understand your partner's point of view better, all of that. Absolutely. Sweet. Sweet. Did you have one more? Couples therapy. 
Yeah. <laughs> if all else fails, and even before all else fails, frankly, you, you've probably heard us say it before. We'll say it lots more times. Couples therapy early and often preventative rather than a last ditch effort is so valuable because it gives you a place to practice some of these skills, to work through some of these tender moments with support of a, a skilled objective third party. Um, yeah. Yeah. Somebody who has their prefrontal cortex online when both of you don't because you've gotten into those interlocking trigger moments. Yeah. That's how we do it as humans. We need, we need at least one prefrontal cortex, at least a little <laughs> bit online. Just, just one, please. <laughs> <laughs> oh, beautiful. Well, I, I think that does it for today. Yeah, I think so. Well, I hope this was helpful for, for you and you can find the show notes for this episode with links to all the resources we mentioned today at relationshipcenter.com slash podcast. Yes. And if you would like to win that free virtual tea date with me and Josh, remember to send us a screenshot of your Apple podcast review to podcast at relationshipcenter.com by May 9th, 2023. And thank you so much in advance for leaving a review that helps us uh, reach other sweet humans like you. If you have a question that you'd like us to answer on a future episode, go to relationshipcenter.com slash podcast for instructions on how to do that. We promise that we do listen to every question and do our best to answer on our show. And until next time. We love you too. We love you too. Bye. Bye. I feel happy that we have finished our show. I hear that you feel happy <laughs> about finishing our show. <laughs>